You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. We welcome again to the podcast today, Brian McLaren, to have a conversation about an important question, which is also the title of his latest book. And that question and book title is, Do I Stay Christian? Welcome back to the Grace Saves All podcast, Brian McLaren. So glad to be back uh, here with you, David. Brian, in part one of this book, you deal with a plethora of problems that now beset Christianity. And one of those problems you identify is toxic theology. Now, from my perspective, the doctrine of a hell of eternal torment is perhaps the most toxic doctrine of all. And it was cemented into the theology of the Western Church during the Middle Ages. Could you assess for us, in your opinion, the damage that the doctrine of eternal torment has done? Well, I, I, I don't think there are words that can fully assess that damage. I, I think the death toll of that view has been staggering. Because if you have a view of God that God will cause eternal conscious torment for billions and billions of people, um, uh, and, and these might be little children, these might be grandmothers, these might be people who had the misfortune of being born in a place where they didn't hear a certain message. It's just, it creates a view of God that in a sense gives people who envision themselves to be in the image of that God to perpetuate similar atrocities. And if this were only a theoretical danger, that would be one thing, but we actually can look back in history and see as you know, I talk about this in the first uh, part of this book, we see abundant historical evidence that people imitate the kind of God that they believe in. And, and if that's a God of torture and, uh, and harm, then they can easily become people made in that image. The, um, the idea of a hell of eternal separation has become just so assumed about Christianity that some people think that that's just what the whole thing is about, yes. that Christianity is essentially about escaping from eternal torment. So it uh, it almost becomes one of these unstated essential beliefs. So in order to become a Christian, yes. you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he, he died on the cross for the sins of the world, that he rose from the dead, you know, that he maybe, you know, in the Trinity. You, know, you believe those basic things, but you also have to believe that God is— that God has a hell of eternal separation or torment of some kind. And, and if you, if you don't believe that one, then you can't, ironically, then you can't get, you can't get in. Uh, it's, I mean, I grew up with that and I, I was, I believed exactly that. In fact, I was just invited to preach a sermon at the 100 year anniversary of a famous sermon called shall the fundamentalists win. And one of the five fundamentalists, articu- uh, one of the five fundamental doctrines articulated by the fundamentalists uh, j- just over a hundred years ago was called penal substitutionary atonement. And the whole purpose of that doctrine is to get people out of hell and is to explain the mechanism by which God uses Jesus' suffering to get people out of hell. So it is deeply, deeply embedded in conservative Catholicism and conservative Protestantism. It has been embedded for a long, long time. Thank God there have always been minority, there's been a minority opinion through most of Christian history. And thank God for people like you who are publicly challenging that doctrine uh, these days. Uh, In fact, this book, Do I Stay Christian? I I think you could safely say that one of the reasons that many, many people do not want to stay Christian is they just don't want to be part of any religion with that bleak of view of God and that heartless of view of humanity and history. Well, in in part one of the book, you go into awful but necessary detail on the ways Christians have been violent towards each other. And I have the feeling that the root of this violence, as you already alluded to, 
came out of the understanding that since God would torment heretics and their followers in hell forever, it was permissible to employ any means necessary right now to stop them. So what are your thoughts on the relationship between the eternal torment doctrine and Christian violence? Yes, if if torture, uh, which is just another word for torment, uh, the intentional infliction of extreme pain, if this is something that is morally acceptable for God, then it's morally acceptable. It's not immoral. It's not off limits. And so, and history tells us th- this is certainly the case. You know, um, uh, in the book, I include a quote from the Middle Ages where a church leader used the word terrorize. We want to t- cause terror in people so that they won't uh, say and do certain things. And they use torture and, 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 uh, and ultimately execution. But on this side of execution, the infliction of pain. And, and in, in a certain sense, he was acknowledging that the, he believed the church should be a terrorist organization. Uh, the fact is, the witch burnings, I think, were a form of terrorism, um, inflicting on a few, it wasn't a few, it was uh, at least 40,000, and some people would say, uh, estimate it being way, way more than that, but inflicting on some such horrible torture that then everybody would be afraid to speak up and stand up and differ with church authorities. So this is so much a part of our history. And part of me feels rude and impolite in bringing it up because people think you're just trying to be mean. But I would say covering up this history is the real dangerous thing. And uh, so I hope I can do it in a good spirit, but I want to, I think we need to face these parts of our history. And I think, as you say, they have theological roots. I'm reminded of something, an evangelical pastor who I know had real question, who, who privately, I don't know how public he ever was with this, about traditional understandings of hell, Dallas Willard, said mm-hmm. to me, he said, if your view of God is twisted, the more devout you are, the worse off you become. And I think this is a great case in point. I, I remember when I was reading your book, I, I, I have some familiarity with the with the kinds of violence that Christians have done to each other. But your book took that to a whole new level. There were your descriptions, the vivid descriptions of the 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 tortures, and these were Christians using these on other other believers. Yeah. As a matter of fact, they were so vivid, I found it very disturbing. I had to put the book down. Yeah. And then you even had a section at the end of the book where you said, there are even more gruesome things that I had to put in a special part of the end of the book because they could be triggers for people. And I felt like I was reading a horror novel Yeah. that, that even that the, who could even invent? Yeah. We can't even say... I don't even want to say on the podcast what some of the things that are in your book that Christians invented. But to me, it kind of reminds me of that. They were trying to the harmonious Bosch, his, his yeah. paintings. They were, well, they were trying, they were just doing what they imagined God was going to be doing. Yes. Yeah. In fact, uh, I remember reading uh, Dante's Inferno in, uh, in college. And of course, a lot of people have different interpretations of Dante and and to what degree he ever intended anybody to take anything he said literally, uh, whether it was really a political satire and all all the rest. But um, but yeah, people had very vivid imaginations and wondering what would go on in hell. (laughs) And uh, and you you can see it in ancient, not only paintings like Hieronymus uh, Bosch, but I remember I was in Prague in the Czech Republic and there was the, there was uh, stone carvings in the front of the church picturing what would happen to people in hell. And it's, yeah, it's the stuff nightmares are made of. Uh-huh. Well, even when you go to the Sistine Chapel, you look up at the ceiling and there's, yeah. you know, God reaching out to Adam and Adam Seeing a bit, seeming a bit bemused about the situation, and then on the far wall, you see what's at stake. There is the judgment yes. scene there, and there are yes. those same kinds of pictures of the people being tormented. It is just so baked into things. Thomas Talbot, in his book, The Inescapable Love of God, wrote, 
Had it not been for an obsessive fear of heresy grounded in the traditional understanding of hell, most of the atrocities committed in the name of the Christian religion would never have occurred. I think that's probably that's probably on target. Yeah. Well, you know, reason, uh, go ahead. I, I, let me just say um, that way of operating to tell people you have to say what we say and not complain about what we do and accept what we mandate or you will be tortured. Um, the word for that is authoritarianism, dictatorship, tyranny, despotism. And the irony is that we, we in a sense, tried to graduate from tyranny, despotism, and so on into democracy in our politics. But in many ways, we didn't in our theology. And I think what we witnessed on January 6, 2021, is a reminder that our theology could pull our politics back into that kind of behavior as well. In other words, we saw people holding up Bibles shouting, hang Mike Pence. And we, and, and this, this sense that God is okay with this sort of thing. In fact, God mandates it and commands it. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it has far-reaching consequences. That, and when that we're seeing that right now in the conflict in, well, the war yes. with— uh, Russia and Ukraine, that's being, that's being justified on religious grounds. Yes, yes, exactly right. And, and it's scary to know how many uh, Christians here in the United States applaud and look up to those kinds of leaders. Well, a recent development in evangelical circles has been an openness to annihilationism. And that certainly seems a more humane position comparative to the doctrine of eternal torment, but in my view, it still doesn't seem to reflect very well on the goodness of God. If God knew in advance that some or many or even one would come to or might even come to such a bad end and still went forward with creation anyway, how can God be a being in whom there is light and no darkness at all? Yeah, the best thing you can say about some ideas is that they're better than other ideas. <laughs> in other words, there are ideas worse than that. So, yeah. um, well, you were, you have been around evangelical circles for a long time, and so you probably remember when annihilationism began to be considered. Even that was controversial. It doesn't seem as controversial now. Although I wouldn't be surprised if the the uh, sort of crackdown on anyone who doesn't comply with traditional beliefs. I, I would, wouldn't be surprised if there's another set of crackdowns because we're at this period in our history when, when traditionalists and very conservative people are, see the world as changing and they're very afraid. And that fear makes them be willing to take more and more extreme measures to try to get back to a world that they feel comfortable in. And so I, I think it might be a little more tolerant. People might be more tolerant of that concession right now, but I, I wouldn't expect that to last. I think, I think the old idea of eternal conscious torment that God takes delight in because God takes pleasure in the torture of the unrighteous. I think that idea is still smoldering in, um, in an awful lot of minds and hearts. And I think it will it's it it will come to flame again, which means the work that people like you are doing, David, uh, in in a podcast like this is is t deeply and terribly relevant. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have been impressed. Well, I would say I just got a, an email today from uh, somebody with background in the Church of Christ. I get emails. A lot of the emails that I get are from people from evangelical conservative. Yes. Uh, conservative conservative backgrounds, and it's been interesting to me that sometimes the way they have started rethinking things is they they have started to wonder about the whole end times doctrine yes. that they were taught. Yes, and they discover a preterist view. Yes, in which they can locate that eschatological language in the first century. Yes, and once they start doing that, then that leads them to rethink. Maybe what is Gehenna and what is hell and what was the judgment language of Jesus all about? Yes, yes. This uh, I was exposed to this uh, decades ago, and it what was interesting for me as a person who grew up with you know in an evangelical background with a really great 
respect and knowledge of the Bible. I mean, I knew so much Bible by the time I was, uh, you know, 15 years old that this accounting of the text really made sense. It made way more sense than uh, other approaches I, I'd, I'd been taught to interpreting the text. And, and then I went to college and majored in English and graduate school in literature. And I discovered that there is a whole genre called Jewish apocalyptic literature. And when I learned that genre, it even made more sense. And um, so this is one of the sad things that we have a lot of people who don't, who, who conveniently forget that before the Bible was the Bible, it was a collection of literary pieces and literary pieces are literature and literature involves literacy and literacy involves genre. And we ought to try to understand the genres in which things were written. And, um, and these passages, especially that deal with violent apocalyptic ends, you realize, oh no, this is a genre. So for example, we know the genre of science fiction. You know, science fiction isn't trying to make a prediction of what the future is going to be. It's a way of using stories about the future to help us more honestly and clearly see the present. Well, once you understand that about the genre, it helps you appreciate it more. And I think we need that in so many of these so-called apocalyptic texts. Uh, the, the book of Revelation is interesting. It's, it's, it's so scary. You get to the, uh, you know, the white throne judgment and, yeah. you know, being cast into the lake of fire that you almost just kind of shut down there. Yeah. But it is interesting, even in the book of Revelation, if you keep on going, it has a kind of a curious, curiously hopeful yes. ending where it seems like these people that were in the lake of fire, toward the end of the book, even after that, we get another scene where the gates of the city are open and there's people outside yes. of the gates. Yes. Yes, it's so interesting, isn't it? It's it's a very different kind of text. You, you might say, well, in fact, there's a, a famous quote from C.S. Lewis where he says something like, you know, people who don't not know how to read literature written for grown-ups shouldn't. <laughs> uh, well, you do have to. I, I do think it it helps. It helped you. You didn't go to you didn't go the seminary route, but you went the literature route and being able to understand genre and story, yeah. I think has really propelled you uh, throughout all, all these years. Now in the, in the second part of the book, you give reasons for staying Christian. And one of the reasons I can stay Christian is because of my sense that Jesus remains as transcendent as ever to me. And because I find beautiful evidence in the scriptures as well as in some of the early church's greatest scholars, and apparently a good bit of the early rank-and-file Christians, that there existed in early Christianity a nonviolent, non-imperial approach to the faith, which focused on the complete victory of Christ over the powers of sin and death. And what this meant to these hopeful early Christians was that God's good creation and all of us would be fully restored in the ages to come. Could you say something about this? Yes. You know, this... As you know, in, in the kind of very middle of the book, I, I have a chapter where I talk about, if you ask me, can I stay Christian and do I stay Christian, Jesus really would be the main reason. It, you know, there are beautiful elements of the Christian tradition, but there are so many ugly elements that if it weren't for Jesus, it, I would find it much more easy, much easier to leave. And, and this idea that Jesus actually is reflecting God in, in who he is. Well, then you ask, how many people did Jesus torture? How many people did Jesus stone? How many people did Jesus annihilate? How many people? And you say, no, Jesus was kind to everyone. In fact, Jesus said that we should love our enemies because God loves God's enemies. And so this image of God that we get from Jesus is so different than uh, the image that the Christian religion has upheld of God. I guess it was said. To, I, I, I guess it was said to me um, best uh, when someone said that the ultimate word of God for Christians is not a book but a person, and that the, the ultimate revelation from God is is not words but it's human flesh. It's a human being alive in a human historical situation who lives out this vision of nonviolence and radical revolutionary love. Well, what, what has been really interesting to me just to experience is 
you know, if you visit with people and they're, you know, they say, uh, well, you know, I can't, I couldn't be a Christian because I can't be involved in a religion where it's kind of an us versus them thing. And, you know, God is, uh, God's going to cast some people away forever for some reason. And I just don't want to be a part of something like that. And then I say, well, you know, you don't have to interpret Jesus in that manner. And there were several in the early church who believed and some of the great early scholars and church leaders believe that God would ultimately save everyone. And that's yes. a part of the Christian heritage. And yeah. people find that absolutely shocking. Yes. That they, they just don't know that that ever happened or that that ever existed. And when I can show them that there were several hundred years of Christianity before we got yes. this Western Christian tradition, that just opens up a whole world of possibilities for them that they didn't even know that they had as part of their heritage. That's right. That's right. Very well said, David. And and there was a whole very stunning liveliness of, of Christian theology in those early centuries. And it wasn't, it wasn't that everybody agreed with each other about everything. Uh, there were, there was diversity of opinion, but the thing that they shared was the idea that not everybody is going to have to reach the same conclusion about everything. And gradually that, that was squeezed out and gradually power was concentrated in a smaller and smaller group of people who were willing to use more and more vicious means to maintain that power. When people today think that Christianity is a done deal, well, in some settings, yeah, if you disagree, you are, uh, you are kicked out. But I think looking back at our history, we say, no, w- these very narrow, rigid, authoritarian expressions of Christianity we see today, you know, they, they don't get to dominate the whole story. They don't get control over the whole story. Yeah, I, I just think it's very, very helpful for people to know that. They, they sometimes think, when I tell them about some of my ideas, that, oh, well, this sounds very, it sounds like, like a very new way of thinking. Mm. And I can say, well, actually, it's a, it's a very old way. It's yes. a very old way of thinking, you know, that this is not new to the Christian. Yes. Uh, the, the idea of the beauty and the restorative purposes and plans of God has already been articulated beautifully. It just wasn't part of the tradition that yes. we inherited, so we didn't we didn't ever get to know about that. That's right. The um, the, the one sector of the church that I think still carries that tradition more than others, and it's not even all parts of this tradition, but in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, where those early church scholars are still respected, you know, they they will tell you, yes, you know, Gregory of Nyssa had a different view. Yes, Irenaeus had a different view. And and so they they keep that, uh, that part of the tr- tradition alive. But what seems to have happened in a lot of our Western Christianity, first Catholic, but also Protestant, is that the voices of Augustine and then Aquinas silenced any voices that disagreed with them. And they, I'm sorry, especially Aquinas, I don't know if he would have, you know, taken this tack himself. They have been used to become the dominant voices, the authoritarian, not just authoritative, but authoritarian voices in the Christian faith. And if you if you look into the history of Justinian and the Fifth Ecumenical Council and the, yes. some of the anathemas that got historically attached to that meeting, even though they weren't discussed at the meeting formally, yes. the historical memory of that put an end to basically in any speculation other than yes. eternal torment. Yes. And then you know then Aquinas and others just come along and put finer and finer points on all of yes. on all of that is. As we begin, as we continue to move through um, uh, Western civilization, now in the in the last section of the book, you go into the ways that, speaking of going forward, that we can go forward in a more enlightened way. And here you have some language about redeeming and reconsecrating harmful elements of the faith. So we can't really just throw the idea of hell away, but we can repurpose it. You say. So could you tell us more about your sense of an enlightened or repurposed or reconsecrated approach to hell? Well, um, I wrote a book many, many years ago on the subject of hell called The Last Word and the Word After That. And one of the things I tried to do is look at other Middle Eastern cultures 
during the period when the Jewish people adopted uh, the idea of hell. A lot of people don't uh, don't know that uh, in biblical Judaism, in other words, all the books that uh, uh, of the of the Hebrew scriptures that we have in our uh, Christian Bibles today, nobody believed in hell. Nobody believed in eternal conscious torment. Not a single Jew believed this. Um, it only comes into Jewish thinking in the years between Malachi and Matthew, we might say, and a couple of hundred years before, uh, before Christ. And during this period, our best re- uh, reconstruction today is that ideas from other cultures it may have been the Zoroastrians, it may have been the Egyptians, it may have been a little bit of both and some other sources as well, were adopted by the Pharisees. They brought these ideas into Judaism. When you step back and you just try to understand ideas of the afterlife and how they were used in the ancient world, they have a very interesting sociological structure uh, uh, function. They function as very often as ways of empowering elites. Um, The elites, for example, in ancient Egypt would have eternal life and the poor had no eternal life. Well, what a way to say that the poor's lives are worthless and their deaths are insignificant. It's only the rich who count. And, And so you can see, I see, it makes sense to me why the Jewish people would not accept those beliefs for such a long time. Um, but then you would say, well, why would the Pharisees accept those beliefs? Well, when you understand that they had a series of humiliating military victories in, in the several generations before Christ, where they would try to have rebellions so that they would experience liberation as the, as the story of Egypt uh, said that, they, that God would set them free when they were under the control of uh, first the Greeks and then the Romans. And, and a, lot well, of the, for, a lot of and this is where some some of this uh, apocalyptic literature that you exactly talked about right. earlier comes from. When we understand a group of people who are humiliated and subjugated, and of course they would develop fantasies of getting revenge, and of course they would get ideas of fantasies of their God getting revenge on the these heathens who are persecuting them, right? It all starts to make sort of psychological sense. And then you realize how dangerous it would be to take the, those ideas and try to universalize them. So what it allows us to do is to see them in a humane light and to see, not, not that we're saying they're humane ideas, but to understand, of course, people who are being oppressed and raped and tortured and mistreated would have fantasies of, of revenge. So in that way, we don't just try to pretend they're not there, but we say there's, we can understand why stories like these would evolve. And then we'd have to say, and we think now it was a gross mistake for us to try to take those stories literally and turn them into uh, inerrant, divinely revealed truth. What I have discovered is that when, when I talk with people, they'll say, well, we don't believe in hell. And, and I'll say, well, it's not that I don't believe. I don't believe in a hell of eternal retribution that doesn't finally accomplish any restoration. Yes, uh, yes. Just like good parents have to take corrective measures uh, with their children uh, sometimes, but good parents always do that with the means towards restoration. <laughs> yes. It, with the means towards, so it's not that hard for me to imagine that God could construct a quite harrowing experience in order to bring somebody to their senses or to help them to get an idea of the pain that they inflicted on somebody else to, to mm-hmm. break through their rationalizations and their denials, that God might have to resort to some pretty extreme measures. And I also get the idea that God uh, is not in a hurry and so that God is just fine to let somebody sit with something for how, however long they need to until they finally have their, in other words, we can sit in the pig pen as long as we, as we want to uh, <laughs> until we yeah. finally come to, our, come to ourselves. Well, look, we're, we're facing that in real life uh, right now because we're experiencing, uh, as we're having this conversation, New Mexico is experiencing unprecedented wildfires and, and, to have wildfires begin in the American West this early in the year is a very, very bad sign because this is way too early for fires of this magnitude. So we know that we have heated up the atmosphere because of our use of carbon. 
And rather than curtailing our use of carbon, that's just too inconvenient for us. We're basically saying we're going to keep suffering worse and worse uh, catastrophes, wildfires, um, sea level rise, because ice melts at 32 degrees. And, uh, and so as the temperatures rise, more and more of the Arctic and Antarctic ice sheets will melt and add to the volume of water in our oceans. Not only that, but warm ocean water expands and takes up more, more volume. And so in a sense, we're going through this as a civilization. You don't have to have any divine involvement at all. It's just science that if we don't pay attention to reality, we're going to experience painful consequences that we hope eventually will uh, reach a level where we say, we better figure out a different, a, a better way to get, uh, to get our energy. And, and there's also kind of a, a moral grain to the universe. And yes. we can go against that grain, yes. but the longer that we go against that grain, the more splinters we get, the, the more <laughs> yes. painful, you know, the more painful it becomes. And finally, you know, we just have to, we just have to finally say, why am I, why am I doing this? To <laughs> you, you think of the guy who gets what he wants by bullying other people and it keeps working. But then he starts to realize nobody likes me, nobody trusts me, and then he has to say, "Would I rather have keep getting my way, or and be lonely, or would I like to mature a little bit and have some relationships?" We don't have to post posit that God is meeting out punishment on that person. We just have to say that's how reality works, and uh, reality is trying to teach this guy something. And God, the presence of God, is the presence of the invitation to repentance and humility and change and growth and maturity and love. So, yeah, that's how I. That's how it looks to me. Brian, my sense about your work is that you came out of a rigid fundamentalist tradition, which functioned with absolute doctrinal certainty. And so now you appreciate having a sense of mystery, which causes you to avoid taking absolute positions. Meanwhile, I'm coming from a liberal Protestant background where there was so much theological mystery that I'm appreciating having now a theological position where God is certainly the loving parent of all who sincerely wants to save all, who in Christ has covered the sin of all who is sovereign over all, and who will finally be all in all. The mystery I now deal with is how I can come to any conclusion other than Christian universalism and still understand God to be a being of light in whom there is no darkness at all. What would you say to those of us who answer the question, can I stay Christian? With, yes, providing I am able to affirm the ultimate salvation of all in Christ. Yes. Well, first, I would say everything you said, uh, I, uh, I am, am in sympathy with. I don't disagree with anything um, that you've said. And I would also say, I think it is your good moral sense to say there is something wrong with affirming a vision of God that's anything less than, than loving in, in, in the way of Christ. Um, in other words, any vision of God that's worse than Jesus doesn't seem to be, to be a Christian uh, vision of God. I, I think there are, you know, a lot of different, as you said, we come from different places and we're trying to solve different problems. And, mm -hmm. um, and one of the, 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 the historic traditional universalism that really started emerging a couple of hundred years ago, I, what it seemed to me it it used to do i i don't think you do this anymore but and but if you did that would be fine too but what it seemed to me to do is it accepted the basic rules of western christianity that god was that god's disposition is to send everybody to hell but that because of jesus they wouldn't have to go to hell and my sense has been that I think we ought to go a little deeper and question those basic rules of the game. That to say, maybe it's not, it never was God's disposition to create a place of eternal conscious torment that he would later exempt everyone from, but rather that a, a better vision of God is that that's just not the way God is to begin with. But it, the end result is, is the same. Well, what, what, I have, what I have thought is, tell me if this is resonates with you, that you have wanted to appreciate a sense of mystery, but in so doing, you're not trying to say to people that they can't be a Christian universalist if that's the way that they can be Christian. If 
if believing that God will ultimately be all in all is necessary, if you, if you need to have that in your, your belief bag in order to stay Christian and to have that be something that you can have as an anchor, then, you know, by all means, yes, by all means, you know, do that. Yes, 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 yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, uh, and I don't know, David, what, uh, I, I, you've heard me say in the past, but, um, when people used to ask me, are you a universalist? I would jokingly say to, I I was saying this with some humor. I would say, oh no, it's much worse than that. (laughs) Um, I I would of course, speaking as a former fundamentalist for whom a universalist was the worst thing in the world, I, I would say, I questioned the whole way of understanding the Bible in terms of creation, fall, uh, salvation, heaven, and hell. Um, I, I, I don't even believe anymore. When I read the book of Gen- Genesis, I don't even see the idea of fall. I don't, I don't even see that in the Bible. Um, I think that's a construct that got laid on the Hebrew scriptures by August, through Augustine and others after him. Um, but the, my sentiments are 100% with the, uh, the, the universalists who are, who say, look, if God's love is the ultimate reality, then uh, then of course uh, reconciliation is the is is the uh, is the beautiful end to which God any story God would be behind would inevitably lead. Well, that that is interesting because you know if you approach this from a narrative standpoint, then you have to ask the question: What story would a God of light in whom there is no darkness at all want to tell? Yes. And, and, and then in dreaming up that story, if God is above our temporal reality, then the end of that story exists before the story even enters into our temple, temporal reality. And so it it just really, to me, to me, that has helped to me to make sense of the whole thing, to ask, ask narrative questions. What kind of story did God, is God telling? And that story seems to me was told from beginning to end before it entered into the into our before before involving any of us in it yeah i mean these these are are some deep theological waters that for example the whole field of process theology might approach it a little differently and i can live with a lot of different ways of of approaching approaching some of those those theoretical questions but if we conceive of God as in any way as the creator, um, then we'd have to say, why would God create a story that would be that would leave things infinitely worse off than they ever were forever? <laughs> that just there's no way that kind of narrative makes any sense to me. Well, in in your work, Brian, I sense in you a confidence that that we don't live in an us versus them dualistic reality. Rather, we live in a non-dualistic reality, and we're all in the hands of a God of infinite love who may be trusted absolutely and whose goodness is overflowing and never ending. And so you have every confidence that even if someone can't remain Christian, that doesn't mean that God no longer views them with any less love or any less redemptive purposes so what would you say to those who, for whatever reason, can no longer identify as Christian? Yes. Well, that actually, the way I structured this book, Do I Stay Christian? Part one is no. Um, and where I give 10 chapters that are, are, I, are among the most significant reasons not to stay Christian. Um, and then the next section I call yes. And that's where I say, is there any way that with your eyes open to those first 10 chapters that you could still stay Christian. And I try to offer those, um, those chapters. But at the end of that second part, I say, you know what? Some people are going to stay Christian and some people aren't, and they have good reasons for doing so. But whether you stay Christian or not, you wake up the next morning and you have to say, how am I going to live? Uh, because if you're having problems with your Christianity and you leave it, your problems are not all solved the next day. You still have the problem of being human. And, uh, and the same if you're, you think, maybe I should leave Christianity. No, I'm going to stay. Well, you still have problems the next day. And ultimately, the question of what kind of humans do we want to be is, to me, the question that puts us all then in conversation with each other. Because 
one thing's for certain, we're stuck together on this little planet and we have to figure out how we're going to live together here while we're, while we're still alive. The interesting thing for me is as soon as I articulate that question, it makes me appreciate resources in the Christian faith even more because especially I think of the writings of Paul where, and, and Paul talks about the only thing that matters is a new creation. Uh, and that it's not just a new religion that he's interested in. He's interested in a new humanity. It's a phrase he uses over and over again. And, uh, and it's the way he understands, he talks about a new humanity in Christ and that what Jesus then brings us is a whole new way of being human. And David, I think this is why I appreciate your work so much, because in many ways, our theological arguments are, are, in the, are also anthropological arguments, because one of the ways we talk about how humans should be is to talk about what we think God is like. And, uh, and this question of what are humans su- supposed to be like is a question we wake up with every single day, and I can't think of a more important one. My, my wife teaches in the Religious Studies Department at Missouri State yes. University in Springfield, and, and she teaches Introduction to World Religions, but she's around students that are, for the first time, maybe they're li- they've left behind the Christianity yes. that they grew up in, and they're having, for the first chance, the time well, I'll investigate Buddhism. I'll investigate Judaism. Yes. I'll investigate all these other spiritual pathways. You know, it's that can seem a little bracing. I know in where we live, somebody uh, somebody asked my wife what she was doing and said she was, you know, teaching introduction to world religions. And the person was a bit taken aback, you know. And she said, well, you know, oftentimes what happens is if you give somebody the freedom to go on a journey and to look into other ways of seeing things, and then you show them also that there's a wideness to the Christian tradition mm. that they didn't know about, but then you, but you just give them the freedom to to look at that, and you you let them know that of course they're going to be welcome and accepted at the, in the religious studies department, no matter yeah. you know what you know where they. But it's interesting the people that that sometimes that is what reinvigorates their Christian faith because they discover a, yes. a part of the Christian world that they didn't know existed before. They thought they had rejected all of Christianity. And they, yes. they hadn't, and they're surprised about that. That's so much the the that's so much the work I think that you're involved with, so much the work I'm involved with, trying to help people understand that the version you've been introduced to um, is is not the only option. Well, uh, Brian, I think we should start wrapping things up. I appreciate your time, but the last question I want to ask you about has to do with how our lives can be filled with so much anxiety and fear about ultimate judgment and salvation. And as a minister, I experienced people still struggling with these fears. And there, there are people who grew up in um, these very fundamentalist kinds of traditions that maybe they no longer even believe in that kind of thing anymore, yet the trauma of being raised in that yes. belief system still haunts them. Now, you were raised in that belief system, but you, you seem to have escaped the trauma of it. So what would you say to those still suffering from the trauma of believing for so long in a God who was most likely going to send them to hell forever because they were uh, failures at being a good enough Christian? Oh, what a what an important question and really a good question to end on. So, David, I was remembering earlier today that when I was eight or nine years old, I went away to a Christian summer camp, a fundamentalist Christian summer camp. And we had a great time. We played sports and went swimming, and I loved it. But one night, uh, after it got dark, they told us to get our flashlights, and they walked us through this long trail through the woods. And I'm not sure I'd ever been on a walk at night before. It was scary to be going through the woods at night. And then we came to this opening, and they had a big campfire. And I thought, oh, good, we're going to roast marshmallows. And we sat around the campfire, and a preacher got up. And he terrorized the children by saying, see that fire? That's what's ahead for you. And I don't even want to say any more about it because the people who've been traumatized by that know where this is going. I had already been around Christianity enough that I wasn't surprised by that. And I sort of knew not to take it seriously. But I remember thinking, I wonder if any kids here are really scared and really afraid. Because even then I had the sense, 
this isn't a good thing to do to children, take them out in the dark and terrorize them and terrify them with this kind of a story. So the thing I would want to say to people first is to say, listen, anyone who put that kind of trauma in you, um, they weren't, they weren't doing you a favor. They were perpetuating a kind of authoritarianism. They were perpetuating a kind of, it's really child abuse. They, they were doing something to you that psychologically vicious and mean-spirited. They maybe didn't mean to. They were just trying to do what was done to them, you know, and pass on what was done to them. Uh, but the thing I would say to, to people is, you, um, you're allowed to say that was wrong when people said and did that to you. You would never do that to anybody else. And, and you're allowed to say that shouldn't have been done to me. So that I would just want to reinforce their sense that that was wrong of what was done to them. It's interesting that you said, uh, that you were just remembering that, that we have a way of repressing terror, terrorizing the experiences And so yeah. we don't like to think about those things, but they don't go away unless we bring them back to the surface and yeah. we are able to basically bring them into the light of day and to talk about them. And then once that happens, they can be integrated into our, into our past. But if, if they, ju- if they just sit there and they're never expressed uh, and, and they're never really remembered, yes. then they just, even, even if you change your theology, that's still all embedded somewhere deep in your psyche. I wonder, you know, I'm not a psychologist and it'd be interesting for a professional psychologist to make some comments on this, but I wonder if there isn't something where the adult part of me has to go back and look at the child version of me that was subjected to that. And it was subjected to that before that and after that, but it was subjected to that kind of talk and thinking an image of God and, and have and that the adult part of me would say to the child part of me, you have every right to be angry about that. That was wrong. And, and in a sense, to, 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 to feel anger, because that's not the way a child should be treated. It's not the way Jesus treated children. Jesus didn't do anything like that to children. <laughs> and, and in fact, when others were trying to send away children, he said, let them come. You know, I, I love these children. They're of such as the kingdom of heaven. But I I just say that to say that I think one of the things we as adults have to do is look at the younger versions of ourselves with compassion and to say, when people did that to us, they may have been out of ignorance. It may not have been out of malice. It may have been, you know, they were just, they were just misled, but it shouldn't have happened. It shouldn't have been done. And, um, that's what I want to say to people. I, if you ask, how did it come out differently for me? Here's all I can say to you. I am so blessed that my parents behaved better than that theology. The way they treated me and my brother and the way they treated other people did not reflect that kind of theology. And so I was given the gift of be, being able to take my parents' behavior more seriously than their beliefs. And their behavior was a behavior of unconditional love. Um, and maybe the other thing I'd say to people who've experienced that kind of mistreatment is that I hope, I hope that you meet some people who demonstrate to you that unconditional love so that it doesn't just have to be a theory, but you can actually feel it from another, uh, another human being. And maybe I'd say to those people, even if you don't know anybody who manifests that kind of unconditional love to you. I bet you've manifested it to somebody else. And for you to be able to say, God is more real in my unconditional love to other people than was than God was in those harmful things that were said and done to me. Well, to me, it's uh it's encouraging to to see people like yourself. There are a number, numbers, greater and greater numbers who are who are now kind of stepping out of that that harsh fundamentalist retributive God yeah. um, Christianity and are thinking better of it now and doing podcasts and having yes. uh, conversations. And you, you've been good. You're good conversation partners for people that are wanting to, to have that. And the books that you write continue 
in a way, I think you even put this in your book. It's like your books in a way are like one long book. It's like yeah. one long, <laughs> yeah. one, one giant, one giant long book that just keeps the, that, that fundamental question keeps coming back. Do, do I, can I stay Christian? How can I put this together in a way in which, you know, I can authentically, uh, I can authentically do this. And I appreciated that you, you find a way of, of, of uh, articulating your own position uh, but then you seem to be very roomy in being able to talk with other people, encouraging other people to, you know, whatever level of certainty that you need or whatever it is that you're needing to do that you're, um, you're able to be a firm and you're a good conversation partner for lots of folks. I'll put it that well, way. Well, that's, that's encouraging to hear you say we're at the end of the day, we're, we're all in this together. We're all, we all inherited something we didn't create. It was given to us and taught to us and, we were children. We had no option but to trust the people who told it to us. And part of being adults is having the moral responsibility to decide, do we keep imposing that on our children, our grandchildren, and even do we keep imposing it on ourselves? Or now do we say, I don't think that was quite right. Here's, mm-hmm. here's what, what seems right now. Yeah. So the book is coming out uh, fairly quickly. And then... Uh, do you have what are what what are things in in your future? Well, um, I uh, I have a couple of other writing projects down the road, but really, uh, I'm going to take some time. I feel like I poured myself out into this book, and so I'm going to take some time to let the creative juices recharge. And uh, so I look forward to a summer enjoying my grandchildren. And uh, yeah, yeah, the, it seems to me this book seemed like kind of a continuation from the your previous book about yes. this, about the stages of faith development yes, and sort of a kind of a continuation of that discussion. Yes, that's right. That's right. Okay. Well, you, you have a well-deserved rest and yeah. uh, maybe after the summer, you'll, you'll have a, a revelation of, of the next, of the next book. Go. I just believe it's, it's going to happen. <laughs> there you go. Well, <laughs> listen, you keep up the good work and uh, I look forward to us being at, able to have a conversation about that when the time comes. All right. Talk to you later, Brian. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.